This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.13, Appetite for Mass Destruction. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And uh, I think it's pretty clear now that the Titans News Network segments are just going to get increasingly absurd. And I hope everyone else is on board for that. And I'm Nina. I think we need a name for the ridiculous confidence Jared has just because he's an Earthnoid. I actually have a thing about that in this week's TNN. <laughs> Excellent. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 187 patrons. Woo! Are, are you sure that's not an error? <laughs> it was many smaller last week. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to the 31 newest patrons. Gird yourselves, this is a long list. <laughs> Michael R., Michael W., Jono D.L., Ashley S., Diego P., Celine Zion, Aidango, Sean H., Ruby S.D., Kyle H., Aaron H., Snowbreak, Dylan R., That Millennial, Ryan G, Quantum Nottle, Dawson F, Sean C, David H, Etius M, Ennui on Me, Francesco Kurojishi B, Justin M, Brandon DY, Thanatos388, Arthur W, Viking Soren, Carl E, Ali R, Turne Gumpla, and Constantinos L. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. And I'm counting on you to give Nina an even longer list to read next week. You can do it. (laughs) Today is August 24th, 2019. And if you're just joining us, you should know that in just over one week on September 1st, Mobile Suit Breakdown will celebrate its one-year birthday. Last week, overcome by gratitude for the support and encouragement that we have received from our wonderful fan and patron community, we announced two birthday surprises. First, as a thank you to all of our listeners, we are releasing one of our previously patron-only bonus episodes to the public, and you can vote on which one you'd like to hear. Research about beards and ball mobile suits, a Shakespeare-inspired audio drama, skip watch lists for Gundam 79, reviews of the mobile suit variations designs. These are just some of the bonus episodes we've released this year. There are just seven days left to vote. You can cast yours by visiting gundampodcast.com Patreon, clicking posts, and scrolling down to the poll. We will release the episode on Sunday, September 1st. And second, we want to thank and celebrate all of the patrons who found us in our very first year. So we came up with some unique gifts for our founding patrons. 
Anyone who is a patron as of 12.01 a.m. on September 1st, and this is all New York Standard Time, will receive a personalized certificate of recognition. $1 patrons will receive a digital certificate, while $5 and up patrons will receive a physical one. We designed these ourselves, they are very fancy, and they will be hand-signed by both of us. On top of that, all patrons who are pledging $5 or more, as of 12.01 a.m. on September 1st, will also receive our limited edition Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 1 Enamel Pin. There are only 298 of these in existence, and we are never making any more. Uh, I might have already lost one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 297. <laughs> Our plan is to design a new pin for each season of the podcast. You can see samples of what these certificates look like and the pin on our social media, where our handle is always at Gundam Podcast, whether you're on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And remember, if you are planning to become a patron, founding patron status and the fabulous rewards that come with it is available for only eight more days. Mobile Suit Breakdown is our full-time job, and we still have a long way to go before we achieve all of our goals for the podcast. Things like paying our guests, professional transcription for episodes, and research trips to name a few. But this year has put us well on our way, and we couldn't have done it without all of you. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 12, The Winds of Jaburo. Or Jaburo no Kaze. Literally, the winds of Jaburo. Yep. Our research this week, inspired by the episode, covers nuclear explosions, the fall of Saigon, and mobile suit variations. But first, let's tune in to TNN to find out what happened last week. Astronomers at the Federation's Atacama Observatory reported an out-of-season meteor shower over the Amazon River Basin earlier today, causing many leading experts to worry that the Earth might be further polluted by debris left over from the one-year war, which has been trapped by Earth's gravity. Federation officials declined to comment on the nature of this unexpected meteor shower, but one general did make time for us while he was overseeing construction of new mansions for government ministers and he privately informed TNN that orbital cleanup efforts have been behind schedule largely due to inadequate budgets and shiftless, unreliable space-noid labor. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this urgent message from TEN, the Titans Entertainment Network. People of the Earth Sphere, I hope you're sitting down because you're about to go weak in the knees when you see the lineup of hotties on this season of Most Eligible Titan. After a five-year undefeated streak, heartthrob and bald dynamo Bascom has announced that he will not be competing this year, so the field is wide open for the next generation. That's right, our boys in black will strut their stuff on the catwalk, in the briefing room, and on the battlefield, and you get to decide who will be crowned handsomest titan around, and who will walk away in defeat. Let's meet this year's top contenders. He's tall, blonde, and commanding. Ladies can't resist his mustache or his tiny face. It's Lieutenant Commander Jamaican Donningham. <laughs> After years in Captain Basque's shadow, he is ready to show that he's got what it takes to stun him on the big stage. 
And next up, if you like them blue-eyed and pretty, you can't go wrong with Lieutenant Jared Mesa. He might be a bit of a brute, but he's working on himself. He's got ambition to spare and all the confidence of a mediocre earthnoid man. Plus, he's as loyal as they come, and he never lets a little humiliation get him down. Or even a lot of humiliation. It seems like he might like humiliation. His name might be Cooler, but we guarantee there's no one hotter than Lieutenant Kakrakon Kakuler. And he's getting hotter all the time. He's reliable in a pinch, and he never backs down once the enemy's in his sights. But be careful not to lose your heart to him too quickly, because we've heard he might already have a lover back on Earth. And make sure you tune in for the special hour-long season premiere this Friday to meet this season's secret mystery contestant, a purple-haired Adonis as brainy as he is beautiful, with an aura of mysterious power you have to feel to believe. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program, Already in Progress. And you can read all about his exploits in his new book, Shaw Aznable is a Fraud, How the So-Called Red Comet Took Credit for My Accomplishments, coming soon from Titanic Press. And now the recap for The Winds of Jaburo. Ayug's mobile suits continue their descent to Jaburo. They all release their balutes and continue to fall to Earth. This is Camille's first experience of Earth's gravity. Jaburo itself is much as we remember it from the One Year War, an underground military base the size of a small city, nestled between the jungle and the Amazon River, but is now controlled by the Titans. The chirps of birds and insects are broken by sirens as the Federation forces prepare a defense tanks rolling out of hangars, mobile suits and jets moving into position. Rekoa and Kai, imprisoned, can only watch as troops run down the hall. Rekoa is ashamed not to have been more help, not to have been able to warn Ayug not to attack this place, but Kai sees the chaos as a perfect cover for their escape, if they can only find a way. Out in the jungle, missile batteries emerge from the undergrowth, firing barrage after barrage on the falling mobile suits as jets take off to intercept the Ayug mobile suits in the air. The sky is alight, and into the chaos of weapons fire and explosions, Jared and reinforcements from space arrive. Most of the forces have landed now, and the fighting is among the trees. Camille lands his flying armor on the river, shooting a pursuing jet out of the air, and on the lookout for more enemies. Ill at ease, he speaks out loud to the pilot of the destroyed plane. You wouldn't have been killed if you hadn't come out! Gunshots break up the surface of the water around him, and Camille rides his flying armor like a surfboard on the turbulent river, shooting down another Federation jet in the process. A fallen Jim bursts into flames beside him, and at the tree line, a small monkey tugs the arm of a larger, dead under a tree, felled by fighting. Camille freezes until Quattro's voice over the radio brings him back to the battle at hand. Just as he is about to leave, fire erupts from the tree line, and Jared's group appears. Camille returns fire, destroying a Hyzak before taking off down the river. Jared can't believe that Camille is getting away. What's wrong? We're on Earth! We should have the advantage over Ayug. Launching themselves into the air, Jared and his wingmen fire down on the Mark II, but Camille is able to dodge every shot. 
When he reaches Quattro and the others, Camille is distracted, watching a nearby Federation pilot scramble to get out of his damaged mobile suit before it explodes. Quattro brings his attention back to the mission, and they all take off to enter Jaburo proper. However, once inside, Quattro is uneasy. They aren't seeing nearly as much resistance as he would expect. The massive underground offices and housing blocks are empty. Everything is quiet, as if the whole base were abandoned. Could it be a trap? Jared is furious at the lack of resistance. How can Earthnoids not defend their home against space noids? But local Federation officers explain they had received orders to move out of Jaburo, and the evacuation was already almost complete when the attack began. Camille moves from Area 1, now securely held by Ayug, into Area 2, and has a sudden flash of feeling. He can sense Rekoa and Kai nearby. Before he and Quattro can search the area, Jared arrives, and another firefight begins. Ayug begins to interrogate captured Federation officers, trying to find out why Jaburo is so empty, and where Ensign Rekoa, assumed captured, is being held. One officer tells them that he doesn't care about being kept as a prisoner as long as they all leave here immediately. A nuclear bomb is rigged to explode at any time. The Ayug officers can't believe it. Nuclear weapons were banned by the Antarctic Treaty. If you find out afterwards that I'm lying, you can execute me. The increasingly desperate man begs them to leave and take the prisoners with them. There is no defusing the deeply buried bomb and very little time left. In Area 2, Jared's group have also heard about the bomb and his soldiers beg him to retreat. But in that moment, he spots Camille and personal safety takes a back seat to vengeance. The Mark II is out of energy and can no longer return fire, only run and dodge and defend. Slipping and crashing through a thin layer of stone, the Mark II falls down a deep crevasse, jumping back up and firing a single shot at Jared's Marasai at the exact moment that Jared fires at the Mark II. The two shots hit each other, and the blast knocks each mobile suit backward. The Mark II crashes into a pillar and falls into a deep pit, and Jared is forced to abandon his Marasai. Quattro arrives at the command center at the same time as a technician returns, confirming that there are in fact two bombs, 150 meters below ground, that they cannot be deactivated, and that they will explode in only 35 minutes. And while they have captured Garuda transport ships, none of them have the shuttles that would enable the pilots to return to space. Quattro orders everyone to be on the transports in 20 minutes. He also asks Apoli if they were able to find Bright's family. But the area with the officers' residences was abandoned, and Mirai and the children were nowhere to be found. Scrambling down from the wreckage, Jared yells for a passing jeep to wait, but they take off without him. Running down the road, he finds an overturned vehicle and helps a few stranded Federation soldiers tip it back onto its wheels in exchange for a ride out. Deeper below ground, Camille senses Rekoa as an odd music just at the edge of his hearing. Despite the orders coming over the radio, Ordering all mobile suits to retreat, he searches for the missing ensign. The main force has noticed his absence, and Quattro goes in search of him, but orders Apoli to make sure the transports leave on time. In their cell, Rekwa and Kai haven't seen or heard anyone in a long time. Everyone is gone, and they are forgotten. They begin pounding on the door and calling out. It seems unlikely that anyone will hear them, but it's better than doing nothing and waiting to die. Camille hears, or perhaps senses them, and manages to break open the door. Rekawa cries out in happiness and relief, pulling Camille into a hug. Then she and Kai climb into the Mark II's hand, and Camille takes them to rejoin the main unit. 
Quattro finds them and urges Camille to hurry. They have just 10 minutes before the bombs will detonate. Just outside Jaburo, the last Federation plane is ready for takeoff. A crush of soldiers fill the staircase, trying to cram themselves onto the already full flight. Jared leaves the jeep, telling the men in it they need to rely on their own strength to survive, before shoving, grabbing, and punching his way through the crowd. Not quite aboard, as the plane begins takeoff, he nearly falls, before a woman with teal hair grabs hold of his arm and pulls him inside. The transport ships that Ayugu captured are forced to take off, out of time and now being pursued by three remaining Federation mobile suits. Camille and Quattro appear, moving as fast as they can to catch up to the transport and defend it from attack. Although Quattro orders Camille to board the transport, he gets just close enough to allow Rekawa and Kai to jump aboard before going back to help. Quattro tries to order him back, but Camille will only board the transport if Quattro does too. They both make the leap, only just making it aboard the Garuda in time. Their pursuers, having waited too long, are killed in the explosion, their mobile suits obliterated when the twin atomic bombs detonate beneath Jaburo. A small aircraft appears in front of the Garuda and radios them. It's their Karaba escort, Hayato Kobayashi. They follow him as the mushroom cloud hovers over the ruins of Jaburo. So the world's on fire and they nuked the rainforest. This episode deals entirely with the main part of the attack on Jaburo. We saw the beginning of it previously, but here we see the attack itself, not merely the entry into the atmosphere. So we start in Medias Race with the uh, Ayug and Titan's mobile suit forces falling through the atmosphere. And very quickly, they deploy their parachutes and they're on the ground. There's the fight itself. The discovery that most of Jabro has already been evacuated and that it has been rigged to explode with a nuclear weapon. And that not everybody left behind knew about that. So there is what one might call a token defense of Jabro, but it's lopsided. Camille notices that from the beginning, although his concern over the unfairness of the fight feels silly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he seems legitimately horrified by the unfairness of just slaughtering these enemy mobile suits. What struck me in this episode about Camille is that all of his notice, all of his concern is for enemy pilots, right? He is worried about the unfairness of the fight, even though that ought to mean better survivability for him and his Ayug comrades. And that Titan's pilot Camille kills in the atmosphere would not have hesitated to kill him if the boot had been on the other foot. It's possible this is another moment meant to really emphasize how naive Camille is, that he's worried about fairness in a situation where your ideal situation is unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know if you're just speculating hypotheticals, but I completely disagree with that read. I don't think this is about Camille being naive at all. Okay. I mean, the other possibility, if we assume that we are meant to sympathize with and agree with Camille's basic position, which is not terribly well articulated and which I think I could try to explain, but it's it's not clear, right? We know he's generally against violence, but not all the time. He sees a lot of violence as purposeless, but not all of it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I would say Camille has a hard time articulating what exactly his whole deal is here. Uh, and he, there are a lot of moments where he fails to see the sort of irony in his way of thinking. At a couple of points now, we've seen him express what amounts to, why are you making me kill you to enemy soldiers? Like, if you <laughs> didn't fight me, I wouldn't have to kill you. If you just surrendered or if you just ran away, I wouldn't have to kill you. You wouldn't have to die. And he completely fails to see some of them might feel the exact same way about him. I mean, it's a way of exculpating himself, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not his fault that he had to kill them. It's their fault for showing up. If you had the opportunity to talk to Camille and you said, you know, some of the pilots on the other side probably feel the same way, he would say something like, well, yeah, of course they do. But what am I supposed to do about that? The problem Camille has is Camille is very good at identifying problems. Camille knows what he doesn't want. And he doesn't want to be doing this. And he doesn't want to be killing these guys. Camille doesn't want to be fighting in this war, but he doesn't have a choice. And when he's saying, you're making me kill you, there's some of that feeling of like, I can't escape this. I can't get out of this. I can't do anything else. This isn't my fault. This is you. He doesn't have any sense of control. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, all of his mourning, all of his attention in this episode is for enemy soldiers. He notices a mobile suit pilot get out of the mobile suit right before it explodes. He notices a mobile suit on fire and thinks to himself like, oh my God, the pilot. I think the one on fire might have been an AUG suit. It was a Jim 2. Okay. It does feel for the most part. And then every time Quattro's there like, are you hurt? Are you injured? <laughs> because if you're not reacting, moving, behaving appropriately on the battlefield, I think something's wrong with you. Yeah, one of the running themes in this episode is how badly Quattro is misreading Camille at like every stage. Yeah. The other thing Camille does in this episode after that first kill in the atmosphere is he doesn't kill any more pilots. He always blows up the heads. Mm, I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> what they choose to show us in this episode is Camille's empathy for his opponent and really struggling with what he's being asked to do you know when he's screaming at them why did you come out stop making me kill you he's not really talking to them he's talking to himself he's making an argument to himself he's justifying his actions to himself because he doesn't agree with what he's doing and one of the final moments i want to talk about with relation to camille is as they're fighting his attention is drawn to a monkey on the jungle floor, and it's pulling on another monkey who appears to be dead, to have been caught in the crossfire of the battle or some debris or something. And in one way, they are a stand-in for basically any civilian in war, right? Uh, but also for sort of nature itself. I thought it was a little heavy-handed for Gundam <laughs> to hmm. be like, Look what we're doing to nature, guys. Like, grab your face and shove mm. it. These animals don't know what this fight is about, and they don't care. <laughs> they don't care about earthnoids. They don't care about space noids. The trees don't care. The river doesn't care. And yet, it's all destroyed. It's all polluted. It's all irradiated by this human conflict. So in that scene, I did see the environmental message. It's definitely there. But there's something else there which is more specific to Camille because it's a little hard to tell. To me, it looks like a baby monkey is tugging on the arm of an adult monkey, the adult monkey having been killed, crushed under a falling tree. And this is Camille, again, coming back to that theme of 
children and parents and like the baby monkey with the parent that was killed in the war, just like Camille and just like the mother and child that he was drawn to on Colony 30. And then both uh, baby and dead parent get blown up by Jared. Was that Jared? It was Jared's squad. Uh, one of them shot the baby. Right. Well, they were trying to shoot Camille and they missed. Which, yet again, emphasizing that sort of like wrong place, wrong time. Mm-hmm. Even when you're not the target, you're being harmed. Yeah. In a way, it doesn't matter who actually shot the baby. Mm. And it doesn't matter who actually brought down the tree that killed the parent. Because, you know, A.U. did it by attacking. The Titans did it by fighting back. Wong Lee did it by ordering the attack in the first place. Like, you can follow this chain Trace of causality it. as mm-hmm. far back as you want to. Maybe it goes back to Girin declaring war on the Earth Federation. Maybe it goes back to Degwin not being a very good dad. Yeah, you mentioned Quattro earlier, and we have... <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is not an episode that makes Quattro look good. It makes him look like a very competent soldier. Yes. Though perhaps... Uh, one with a death wish. <laughs> well, so Quattro and Camille do something very similar here, which is both of them know that the whole place is about to blow up. And not just regular blow up, nuclear bomb blow up. In 10 minutes, five minutes, one minute. And they both keep stalling. Well, they both go back to rescue one of their own. Camille goes to find Rekoa and Quattro goes to find Camille. When Camille has his new type flash of Rekoa, he sees Rekoa and Kai, not just Rekoa. Just saying. <laughs> new type harpsichord moment, but it's the meh sound. <laughs> well, and just like Edamon, when Emma summoned Camille for help, Quattro doesn't feel it. Perhaps as Quattro has gotten older and more callous and some of the other things, changes we've seen in him, he's lost his new type abilities, or they've dulled. He is still able to detect the presence of other new types. He could feel the pressure coming off of Jupiter headband. (sighs) But he consistently misreads Camille in this episode. He keeps underestimating Camille. He keeps thinking Camille has been wounded or injured when Camille is actually distracted. That's just not my read at all of his reaction there. I thought Quattro's reactions were quite natural, if you saw your buddy freeze up in the middle of a battlefield, just freeze and stop moving, would what would you think? That they're <laughs> staring off into the distance thinking about death or <laughs> that maybe there's something wrong with their mobile suit or they're wounded? I don't know. Are you a new type who should be able to understand another new type? New types aren't psychics, Tom. <laughs> but what really got me with Quattro's read on Camille is when he tells Apoli and Roberto, oh, Camille's doing great. Mr. Wong's correction seems to have really straightened him out. When really, Camille is not doing great. Camille is really struggling in this episode, thinking about death, thinking about motivations, blaming himself for everything he's doing. But his struggle is internal and is not affecting his performance at the thing that they want him to do. Except when he keeps freezing. But he keeps fighting. He's fighting very effectively and efficiently. He hasn't lost his cool, really. I mean... He's, he's distractible. I'm not saying he's in a great mental state. I'm saying he is performing the tasks that they want him to perform. True. And performing them adequately. 
Absolutely. And to them, that's like A plus, thumbs up. <laughs> Good job, kid. We'll worry about the, <laughs> the damage later. Sure, but that's what I mean by misreading, right? He's very fragile right now, but because he's performing the duties they expect of him, they think he's great. Or at least Quattro is saying that. Again, he's a known liar. For some reason, Quattro is invested in this narrative of Camille was misbehaving. It was entirely Camille's fault. Camille got corrected. Camille's a great soldier now. And whether that narrative was about isolating Camille or possibly further traumatizing Camille or whether that narrative is about like military discipline and cohesion or why exactly he's propagating that narrative, I'm not clear yet. But this is the second or third time we've seen him come back to this story about Camille's change in behavior. That's very insightful. That's something to keep an eye on. Total sidebar, but I have in my notes, someone is shocked that they would use nuclear weapons when it's in contravention of the Antarctic Treaty. (laughs) And I'm reading that note and thinking to myself, treaty with whom? Yeah. Because there's only one government. (laughs) Who would you have a treaty with? Well, the treaty was between the Federation and Zeon back during the One Year War, but the Principality of Zeon doesn't exist anymore, which would make a treaty less of a treaty and more of a unilateral promise by the government not to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's a bit like an article in a constitution or a bill of rights or or some similar document, depending on how legally binding it is, (laughs) I suppose. Uh, That is actually a question that cannot be answered without a very fulsome understanding of how the Federation government works. Are we ever going to get that? Not to a degree that would allow me to answer whether or not the Antarctic Treaty is still binding on the Federation. (laughs) Come on, Gundam creators, give us what we really want. High political drama. Parliamentary procedure. (laughs) Is it a parliament? I don't know. (laughs) Kai continuing to be awesome. Rekua somewhat disappointing. Eh, she did a good jump. Meh. Well, there's just like... She hugged Camille real good. That's true. She was very pleased to see him. Did you notice he didn't really hug her back? Yeah, he's just sort of like straight arm With his hands at his sides. I just mean, they're captured, the attack's begun. Kai is the one who recognizes that they're in danger because the building could be blown up at any time mm-hmm. by anybody. Rekua is still busy sulking about getting caught in the first place. Rekua is sitting there being like, Oh, the shame of not having completed my mission. I can't possibly go back to Ayug. And Kai's like, are you kidding? (laughs) If we don't escape, we will die. (laughs) When Camille does find them, Kai, like, volunteers to take all of the blame for them getting captured. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, Rekua's mission was going great before I came to the picture. Except for the part where she had no way to communicate her information back to anybody in a timely manner. And where he saved her after she got captured by Federation soldiers. But the point is, Kai has no problem being blamed for things, even if they're not his fault. And Rekua apparently has no problem blaming him either. (laughs) All these Ayug people sure are great, aren't they? Oh, yeah, super great. Beckner and Rekua. What is Kai's part in all this? Is he not an Ayug? He's an independent journalist. <laughs> he also voices to Camille what has become strikingly clear throughout this attack. If this place were really being defended, Ayug wouldn't have stood a chance. <laughs> As it is, though, this is a great episode for the grunts. 
all those Nemos and Jim 2s, they get to do a lot of work. There's some really cool animation in this episode, uh, a bunch of it involving Camille on the wave rider in the river. As they're falling, the way that the suits are animated, they seem to pause for a second before they disappear into the jungle. So we get a sense of movement, but then we get a clear view of each suit as it's coming down before it disappears into the jungle. And then there are a bunch of moments in the fight on the river where water splashes up and obscures our, the viewer's, view of what's happening. So all of a sudden, you can't see the enemy's mobile suit or you can't see Camille, uh, only to reveal somebody you know jumping out with an attack or hidden or sprung out of the way. It's a neat use of the environment to make a more visually interesting fight. Part of what contributes to the visual richness of this episode is the the plethora of different mobile suits being used by the Federation defenders. They've got like eight different kinds of mobile suits that we haven't seen before. Of course, they're all completely antiquated, and which is why they get shredded by the Ayug forces, but they are pretty cool to look at. Completely unsuspecting of the probable political reasons for this, Camille notes as he's falling to Earth, they're not even using their new mobile suit. And he's probably thinking about the Masala because they were only just fighting it and is surprised that it's not involved in the battle within Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> we suspect there are reasons for this. <laughs> or perhaps that Jupiter Headband simply does not want to subject himself to Earth's gravity. He says outright, I'm not going to risk falling into Earth's gravity. But that's interesting in and of itself, because I get such strong Spacenoid vibes from him, and yet he's a Titan. Hmm. And we know he's been at Jupiter for a long time, but he's from Earth, probably? Because nobody who's not from Earth gets into the Titans. That is the rule as we understand it. So, he is an interesting character. I wonder if we'll find out any more information about him. I don't. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Jared pursues Camille all over Jaburo and invokes both Kakrakon and Lila at various points when he's so close to destroying the Mark II and then doesn't. Although it's after he's lost his Marasai and he's trying to escape from Jaburo on foot that he invokes Kakrakon and a kind of like, none of this would have happened if Kakrakon were here. He may be right. Yep. And then Jared almost gets left behind. He's calling out for a, a truck to wait and they take off without him and he only gets out because he manages to help some other guys flip over a jeep and get it running his vaunted titan privileges do him no good here except maybe they do once he is fighting his way onto the last escape shuttle possibly i don't his... think so somebody punches him in the face to try and get him back he's right. shoving his way through and talking about like Basically, only the strong survive. I forget exactly what he said, but it comes down to like strength being the key to survival as he's shoving other people out of the way to get himself onto a plane and away from the site of an imminent nuclear explosion. Yeah. I can't blame Jared for his behavior here. Every person on that ramp is trying to do exactly the same thing, and Jared is just the most successful one at it. They're all pushing and shoving and punching and kicking. Though I do wonder if... The woman on the transport who catches Jared would have done the same thing for any old Federation officer. 
That's fair. We can't know. We don't have any evidence of that. She's another one. We don't know who she is, but they put enough detail and attention into her <laughs> that she seems important. You can tell. You can tell. When a woman shows up with an unnatural hair color in an 80s Gundam series, chances are she's going to be important. This is going to be a product for this week's research, probably, but Tom and I were both struck by how that scene of the ramp, the crush of people all trying to get on a plane, the plane taking off, trailing people out the hatchway. Uh, we feel like we've seen that before, and we're pretty sure it's from footage of the evacuation of Saigon and the fall of Saigon. There's that famous photograph of the last helicopter to leave Saigon. And so uh, we will be talking about that, among other things. Jared goes through a process of disintegration in this episode. He enters with this massive squad of Titans mobile suits. When you first see them descending through the atmosphere, it looks like there's probably 30 or 40 Hyzaks there. But he starts pursuing Camille specifically, and he does so single-mindedly. And as he does so, at first he has a squad of Hyzaks with him, but they get destroyed or lost or he becomes separated from them. And then it's just him in the Marasai with one other wingman. And then that wingman is destroyed and it's just him in the Marasai. Then the Marasai is destroyed and it's just Jared on foot desperately trying to escape from this underground facility. And it shows the self-destructive nature of his quest for vengeance, of his pursuit of Camille. He even invokes Kataki, which longtime listeners will remember is the sort of codified vengeance legally pursued vengeance from Japanese history, which Tom did a whole research section about during season one. That was episode 1.11. It's so weird to me that you remember <laughs> what episode all the different research was from. And I think we're meant here to see a parallel, as weird as this might be to say, between Jared and Shaquatro. Besides both being blonde antagonists in Gundam series, Jared and Shaquatro don't initially seem to have that much in common. But Quattro's pursuit of Amaro, the White Base, and the Gundam was, over a longer span of time, similarly self-destructive. And in this episode, we have a direct engagement between Jared and Quattro, in which they're fighting, Jared's wingmen are there as well, Quattro fires on Jared, Jared dodges, and one of Jared's wingmen gets hit and destroyed instead. Quattro takes this opportunity to say something like, that scoundrel is playing dirty, using his wingmen as shields. Which is real rich, coming from Shaquatro, who does that habitually, and in fact, like five minutes earlier in the episode, did the exact same thing. Yeah, you really don't want to be one of Char's wingmen. It's a bad place to be. It's worth observing that the Titans forces Jared brings down with him don't know about the plan to destroy Jaburo. They were dispatched to join this battle, not knowing that they were walking into a trap. And the question is, did Jamaican, who dispatched them, not know, or did he not care? Because this plan has clearly been in place for a while. They've been evacuating Jaburo for some time. I mean, Rekoa, on her float trip down the Amazon, observed 42 of those massive, I think they call them Garuda airplanes, leaving with Jaburo personnel and equipment. Presumably, they could have sent a message to the Titans' fleet to inform them of what they were walking into. 
Right. No need to defend too hard. <laughs> maybe don't send anyone important. Uh, maybe that's why they sent Jared. But what about Cacricon? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. For all that Jared is kind of... A doofus? Constantly being humiliated within the story, he is still inexplicably treated as an important and valued member of the Titans. So it's hard to believe that they sent him here to die. I don't know. I feel like, I mean, Basque certainly did, and Jamaican, I think, does like to humiliate Jared <laughs> pretty regularly <laughs> and just sort of remind him, like, you're a failure. <laughs> you're really bad at this. We are going to continue punishing you until you improve or die. But they keep giving him more chances and they keep giving him new mobile suits. Yeah, I don't I don't really get that part. <laughs> and then at the very, very end, we get to see Hayato. Hi, Hayato. Makes me so happy. And I love Quattro's reaction when he finds out that Kai Shiden is <laughs> on their ship and Hayato is their Karaba escort. Oh, my own white base. <laughs> Gotta catch them all, white base crew. <laughs> but where is Job John? Where is Omer? Where is Masaki? Which one was Masaki? I remember Job John and Omer. <laughs> I do not remember Masaki. Masaki is like a thin, black-haired woman. She shows up in one scene when she's assisting in the med bay and Hayato has been wounded. Mm. I'm just trying to think of the most obscure white-based personnel I can think of. Where's the chef? <laughs> Where's the guy whose job was to fill in on the bridge whenever one of the normal bridge crew was having emotions? Okay, but for real, where is Sela? I can't answer that. Where's Frabo? I can't answer that either. What are the orphans up to? They are playing a tour. <laughs> now the research, where we will talk about nuclear blasts, the fall of Saigon, and mobile suit variations. Well, they did it. They used a nuclear bomb. Since the opening sequence of First Gundam, when we see the colony falling toward the planet, Gundam has gone out of its way to avoid the nuclear option. McVeigh tried to use one, but Amuro and the Gundam effectively and quite symbolically disarmed it. And the analogs, the weapons of mass destruction, they've been there, but they've been colonies, gas canisters, and arrays of mirrors. But now, everything that Quattro feared has come to pass. The Ayug forces he leads are trapped on Earth, and the Earth itself has been polluted on a scale probably greater than he imagined when he first objected to this mission. So let's talk then about this nuclear blast and nuclear blasts in general. This part might sound obvious when I put it this way, but if you're going to detonate a nuclear bomb somewhere on Earth, there are four different places it can detonate. In the atmosphere above the atmosphere, underwater, or underground. Each of these produces distinct effects, and it's worth talking about all of them. The classic mushroom cloud. That occurs after an atmospheric detonation. The explosion produces a massive fireball of super hot gases that, like any super hot air, rises. 
This creates a low pressure zone below the fireball, and that sucks in dirt and debris from the ground to create the mushroom's stem. When the fireball reaches its equilibrium level, when it reaches the height where the air is as warm as the gases are, that's when it stops rising. And since the hot air at the top reaches equilibrium before the hot air on the sides and the bottom, this is where the spherical fireball gets squashed, and it becomes more of a fire mushroom. At the same time that the fireball was forming, the detonation also produced a blast wave in the surrounding air. This travels outward in all directions, damaging everything it touches until it dissipates gradually over time and distance. All of that energy going out leaves behind an area of underpressure, and this causes a blast wind in the opposite direction, pulling shrapnel, people, everything back toward the site of the blast. If all of this sounds familiar to you, it's because Nina described the same phenomenon back when she researched bazookas and why Sela would be dead for episode 1.17. Nuclear blasts are, in most respects, like any other extremely powerful explosion. Even the iconic mushroom cloud can be caused by natural events, like powerful volcanic eruptions. The difference, of course, is the radiation. When a nuclear bomb goes off, it releases a massive burst of deadly nuclear radiation. It also releases radioactive dust left over from whatever material was used as the payload. Plus, it bathes the surrounding matter in radiation, which transmutes all of those bystander atoms into radioactive versions of themselves, like the world's worst superhero origin story. These get picked up by the blast, and they get scattered far and wide, or blasted up into the high atmosphere where they linger, traveling farther and farther from the blast site before they fall out of the clouds to ruin someone's day. And that is why we call it fallout. So that is how an atmospheric nuclear blast works. But everything we just talked about, super hot gases, a blast wave in the air, dust getting sucked up and irradiated, none of those are present outside the atmosphere. So if you detonate a nuclear bomb outside the atmosphere, here's what you'll see instead. There will still be a big fireball from the explosion, but it will remain spherical until it becomes distorted by the Earth's magnetic field. Charged particles will scatter out across the atmosphere and cause aurorae. But most importantly, gamma rays from the bomb will penetrate the atmosphere and transfer a tremendous amount of energy into some air molecules. This sends electrons spiraling off along the Earth's magnetic field lines. The spiraling electrons create a transient electric field, and that emits a serious amount of electromagnetic radiation. And that electromagnetic radiation creates destructive surges of voltage and current in any electronics unlucky enough to be underneath the blast. Because yes, this is an electromagnetic pulse. The US and Soviet Union both tested exo-atmospheric nuclear weapons in the early 60s. And as is unfortunately the case with most nuclear tests, they discovered that the effects significantly exceeded their estimates. The U.S. test, called Starfish Prime, destroyed streetlights and telephone connections nearly 900 miles from the detonation. And the Soviets accidentally set a power plant in Kazakhstan on fire. And this was back in the 60s. Imagine now when so many more people are so much more dependent on the internet, their computers, just miscellaneous electronic devices. Oh, yeah. The article I was reading about this did point out that vacuum tube electronics, which of course were much more common back in the 60s, are relatively hardy and better able to weather an electromagnetic pulse. Modern electronics would be much more vulnerable. 
Now, I said that underestimating the damage caused by the explosion was going to be an unfortunate theme for nuclear weapons testing, and that is nowhere more true than with the earliest, most famous, and most disastrous underwater detonation test, the one at Bikini Atoll. In 1946, the war with Japan was over, and the war with the Soviet Union had begun. The war with the Soviets would, of course, become the Cold War, a high-stakes game of proxy conflicts in the shadow of nuclear annihilation. But the war with Japan had been a wet war, defined by the might of the U.S. Navy's vast fleets. Fleets that were, by the end of the war, larger than all other navies on the planet combined. The Navy had won the Pacific War. They were at the absolute height of their power and prestige. But what place was there for the Navy in a nuclear conflict? What good were battleships and aircraft carriers against nuclear bombs? When I say that today, it sounds like a rhetorical question, but it was not in 1946. The U.S. had rushed the fat man and little boy bombs into action after only one test detonation. In 1946, they had detonated all of three nuclear bombs ever, and two of those had been dropped in enemy territory, making it very difficult to collect any meaningful data about them. No bombs had been dropped over the ocean, no bombs had been set off underwater. The Navy, we are told, wanted to prove that a fleet could survive a nuclear blast more or less intact. The Army, which at this point still included what would become the Air Force, probably wanted to prove otherwise. So they agreed to conduct a series of nuclear bomb tests in the Pacific, with ships for targets. These tests were called Operation Crossroads, and Bikini Atoll was selected as the target. Bikini is a roughly circular coral reef in the Marshall Islands, isolated from sea and air traffic. It is a chain of small islands surrounding a central lagoon big enough to park a fleet. In spring 1946, the United States government relocated Bikini's 167 native inhabitants, and in July, Operation Crossroads began. The test targets were 95 ships left over from the war, obsolete battleships, captured German and Japanese ships, a flotilla of smaller support vessels, and even two aircraft carriers, Independence and Saratoga. The first test, called ABLE, was meant to assess the effects of an atmospheric detonation on warships. But the bomb missed its target by almost half a mile, and caused much less damage than anticipated. I am sure that aiming bombs with 1946 technology was pretty difficult, but honestly this sounds like a pretty embarrassing mistake for the bombardier, especially because the target was a 583-foot-long battleship that had been painted bright red. Ouch. Test number two of Operation Crossroads, Baker, was the world's first underwater detonation. Baker was suspended 90 feet, or 27 meters, underwater and it was moored in the middle of the target fleet. When it went off, well, I'm gonna do my best to describe it, but there's video and you should watch it because it's awe-inspiring and terrifying, and there's nothing quite like it in the world. So the blast starts underwater. The nuclear fireball still happens with super hot gases pushing against the water in all directions. Water has a higher density than air and is harder to compress which means that it conducts the shockwave from the explosion even more efficiently than air would. The shockwave races through the water, traveling faster than a mile per second, and crushing any ship it strikes. Within four milliseconds, the fireball hits the seafloor and gouges a 30-foot deep and 2,000-foot wide crater. At the same time, it bursts through the surface in a dome-shaped geyser of water and gas. 
In the next three seconds, it lifts two million tons of sea spray and sand 6,000 feet into the air. The fireball reaching the surface also creates a weaker shockwave in the air, and behind it, a cloud of fog. For a moment, the spray rising from the fog looks like a crowned head. The fog evaporates quickly, leaving behind a cauliflower-shaped mass of sea spray hanging momentarily in the air. As for the ships in the blast radius, LSM-60, the amphibious assault ship at dead center on top of the bomb, was disintegrated. No identifiable piece of the ship was ever found. The battleships Arkansas and Nagato, the aircraft carrier Saratoga, the submarines Pilotfish, Skipjack, and Apagon, and the oiler YO-160 were all sunk by the blast. But that left behind more than 40 apparently intact ships, seaworthy, but awash in radiation and irradiated water. The Navy at the time was confident that they could decontaminate these ships and put them back into service relatively quickly. They were utterly and hopelessly wrong. Contaminated water was everywhere, and even the clean ships used in the cleanup process became irradiated. One of the vectors for that was that the muscles and barnacles on the hulls of the ships would absorb radiation and then exude radiation. After two weeks of futile effort, they were finally forced to admit that decontamination was not possible. And with no uncontaminated ships left, they were forced to cancel the scheduled third test. It was this aftermath of the Baker Blast, the far greater than anticipated spread of radioactive contamination and the futility of decontamination, more than the blast itself, that changed how we understand the dangers of nuclear weapons. It would be a decade after that before the U.S. would try another underwater nuclear test. And in all, they would only perform four such tests before agreeing to the Partial Test Ban Treaty in 1963. I wish I could say that Baker was the last time U.S. military officials underestimated the power and danger of a nuclear test, but it was not. The Partial Test Ban Treaty prohibited testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, above the atmosphere, and underwater. You'll note that the treaty does not ban underground testing, and that's because underground testing was relatively safe. Early underground detonations in the 1950s with names like Buster Jangle Uncle and Teapot S were only 5 and 20 meters underground respectively, and so they simply burst through the earth into the air and functioned much like any atmospheric detonation. But once the U.S. got the hang of burying bombs deeply enough, things changed pretty completely. When a bomb detonates underground, the first thing it does is to create that same fireball of rapidly expanding superhot gas. This creates a shockwave. It vaporizes the rock and earth closest to it, and melts material that's further away. This forms a rapidly expanding melt cavity inside the earth. Outside the cavity, the rocks are pulverized by the force of the shockwave. Beyond those, the rocks are run through with cracks and fissures. And beyond that is what is called the zone of irreversible strain. The rock here is deformed by the pressure from the blast. Almost immediately, the pressure from the blast dissipates, and the melt cavity collapses under the weight of earth and stone above it. This leaves a crater in the ground above the blast. Viewed from the surface, the land appears to rise and then fall, like the ocean when a wave passes through it. If everything goes to plan, all the radiation is contained underground. No fallout, no exposure. It is a massive seismic event, though, and it's different enough from an earthquake that seismic monitoring stations can distinguish between the two. Today, there is a worldwide network of international monitoring stations capable of detecting any underground detonation. 
But what about the pair of nuclear bombs that detonated in Jaburo during this episode? We know that they are underground, and from the context, it sounds like they are buried even underneath the rest of the Jaburo base, so they're quite deep indeed. But empty caverns don't do nearly as much to absorb the force of a nuclear blast as solid earth would, and from the end of the episode, we can tell that the bombs have not only breached the surface, they have created truly massive mushroom clouds. These are big bombs. Huge bombs. Big enough to irradiate a massive swath of the jungle. And the fallout, all the pulverized bits of irradiated Jaburo base raining down out of the clouds, will contaminate an even bigger area. But perhaps the worst part of this is the water. Underground nuclear blasts contaminate the groundwater. So test sites are typically selected in regions where the groundwater was believed to be relatively inert, so that contamination could be limited. There is now good reason to believe that the scientists at the time dramatically underestimated the dangers of contaminated groundwater near their test sites, and doesn't that sound familiar by now? But still, that pales in comparison to the ecological disaster represented by the Jaburo nuclear blasts. This is the Amazon Basin. Jaburo is underneath the Amazon River. The Amazon Basin is the largest drainage basin in the world. At time of writing, the Amazon rainforest is the largest rainforest and the most biodiverse tract of land in the world. It is ecologically crucial to the Earth, and the Titans just nuked it. The blasts are just the beginning of this nightmare. Fallout and contaminated water is going to kill a staggering number of trees, animals, and people. Without the rainforest, global weather patterns shift dramatically. Droughts are going to hit North and South America. The desertification that started during the One Year War is going to accelerate. These two bombs are going to be killing people for a long time. In the United States and much of Europe, we call it the Fall of Saigon. In Vietnam, it's called Liberation Day or Reunification Day. Among the Vietnamese diaspora, those who were refugees of communism call it the day we lost the country, or Black April. On April 30, 1975, the South Vietnamese capital, Saigon, was captured by the People's Army of Vietnam and the Viet Cong. It was immediately preceded by Operation Frequent Wind, the largest helicopter evacuation in history, and marked the end of the Vietnam War and the beginning of the reunification of Vietnam. Saigon had been relatively safe and peaceful throughout the war, but there was strong fear of reprisals. In cities that had been occupied by the Viet Cong, then retaken by the Army of the Republic of Vietnam and U.S. forces, they found mass graves. Later studies showed that Vietnamese army officers, Roman Catholics, intellectuals, business people, and anyone else considered counter-revolutionary had been targeted for execution. There were reports of beheadings. This was an atmosphere of intense fear for many South Vietnamese people. Americans, other foreigners allied with the United States and South Vietnam, and many South Vietnamese people, especially those closely associated with the United States or the South Vietnamese government, desperately wanted to get out before the city fell. In the month beforehand, flights started to fill up. Non-essential personnel who were U.S. citizens were sent home. But many refused to leave without their Vietnamese friends, or they had Vietnamese wives and children who weren't going to be permitted to fly to the United States. Ultimately, the Defense Attaché Office, which coordinated U.S. military assistance with the South Vietnamese government, began to illegally fly Vietnamese dependents to a United States airfield in the Philippines. 
Other operations involved in evacuating Saigon were Operation Babylift, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 orphans, and Operation New Life, 110,000 refugees evacuated from Saigon. And U.S. citizens had it easy, simply show up at an evac point. Vietnamese citizens sold their property at a loss to buy passports and visas, bought exorbitantly priced passage on boats, or even sought American adoptive parents. By April 27th, Saigon was completely encircled and being bombarded. On the 28th and 29th, the Vietnamese People's Air Force repeatedly bombed the airbase, damaging or destroying planes and parts of the airfield. On the morning of April 29th, U.S. command ordered the commencement of Operation Frequent Wind, which ultimately airlifted an additional 7,000 people out of Saigon by helicopter. The plan had been to use fixed-wing craft, but there wasn't enough undamaged runway left for any of them to take off. Instead, helicopters would take people to Navy ships waiting just off the coast. The signal to head to evac points, for those who already knew they'd be on these flights, was that Bing Crosby's White Christmas would play on the Armed Forces radio station. In one first-hand account, a journalist describes still getting chills every time he hears this song. I won't go through that day hour by hour. There are plenty of sources in the show notes that will do that. But it's enough to know that there was a mood of desperation among many South Vietnamese who were terrified of what would happen if they were still in the city when the People's Army arrived. Hundreds of people became stranded near the U.S. Embassy. Scared people climbed over barbed wire-topped walls and each other, hoping to claim refugee status and get out. The last U.S. helicopter left at 7.53 a.m. on April 30th with the Marines who had been securing the embassy, but Republic of Vietnam Air Force pilots who had access to helicopters flew them out to U.S. Navy ships. Famously, after they landed, many of these helicopters were pushed physically off of ships and into the sea to make room for the helicopter behind them to land. Some pilots let all of their passengers out, then ditched their helicopter, letting it crash into the sea while they ejected at the last moment to be picked up later by rescue crews. And while the scene of Federation soldiers attempting to flee Jaburo feels like an amalgam of many of these, I am now going to attempt to describe a very famous photograph, uh, which is, I think, the primary inspiration for the scene. Imagine for a moment a helicopter carefully perched on a small section of a tiered roof of a white apartment building, half the rooftop and the staircase up to the helicopter crammed with people. This photo is sometimes mistakenly identified as being of the U.S. Embassy, which is what I thought early on, uh, but it is in fact an apartment building where many embassy and defense attaché office staff lived. The ladder from the embassy rooftop was actually removed during the evacuation and is now on display at the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Museum. There is some conflicting information about just how bad the reprisals were in the aftermath of the war. There were a considerable number of journalists who chose to stay behind and document what happened. Uh, and the aftermath seems to depend on who you were. But what is indisputable is that the people fleeing South Vietnam were desperately afraid and thought that they would die if they stayed behind, just like the Federation soldiers trying to get out of Jaburo. The media coverage had been very different from any previous war, due to the speed and ease of sending information, plus the widespread adoption of radio and television, people were reading about the war, hearing about it on the radio, or seeing it on TV every day. 
Afterwards, the U.S. media talked about the end of the Vietnam War, but pointedly avoided saying that the United States had lost. They talked about the costs in time, money, and casualties, and were largely willing to focus on the government's message that the country needed to move on and look forward, not dwell on or refight the past. However, there was some concern expressed over perceptions of the end of the war in Asia and how it would affect U.S. diplomatic relations in the region, especially when you think of countries like Korea, Japan, and the Philippines that had large American military presences and were depending on the U.S. to defend them from communist China. <laughs> there were still 50,000 U.S. troops in South Korea at this time. Japan also had extensive media coverage of the war. About half of all Japanese households at the time received a daily or weekly newspaper, and nearly all of those papers, not to mention television and radio stations, had sent correspondence to Vietnam. One personal account from a journalist who was there mentions about 400 Japanese nationals still in Saigon when it fell. Uh, I guess they had not made their uh, evac flight, and so there were a lot more of them than of some other groups. The initial sense of detachment from the Vietnam War, uh, one politician described it as a fire, but one across the sea, uh, gave way to almost daily protests by the late 1960s, which we talked about in the Japanese protest movement of the 60s and 70s in an earlier research piece. Okinawa was in a particularly difficult position. Under American governance until 1972, Okinawa was not protected by the U.S. or Japanese constitutions. There was no representative government. The U.S. Army built over 80 installations, making the main island feel less like a host to bases and more like a base itself. They stockpiled massive amounts of weaponry, including chemical and atomic weapons. Around 50,000 Okinawans were employed by the U.S. military during the Vietnam War, including on supply ships and as bus drivers in Vietnam itself. Famous war photographer Bunyo Ishikawa describes deeply ambivalent feelings in Okinawa about the Vietnam War. The economy was not very developed at the time, and many appreciated the work offered by the bases. But unprotected by labor laws of either the U.S. or Japan, many Okinawans suffered lasting effects from exposure to toxic chemicals during their time working on the bases. Many Okinawans befriended U.S. soldiers and felt kinship with them especially with black soldiers whose civil rights struggles they felt were similar to their own struggles in Japan. On the other hand, they felt complicit in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Asian people. And in many ways, the Vietnam War set the stage for the reversion of Okinawa to Japanese control and the failure to deliver on many promises to the Okinawan people by the Japanese government. At the time of reversion, Okinawa was told that they would support a similar number of bases, a similar concentration of bases, to the rest of Japan. That has never been the case, and they are in fact still expanding the presence now, or trying to, and it's being constantly protested. Uh, only now, many of those bases are subsidized by the Japanese government, rather than being paid for entirely by the United States. The bases also contribute much less economically to the area than they used to. At the time that Zeta was airing, these events were already 10 years past, so we come back to the question that will fuel the podcast for years to come. Why? <laughs> Why these visuals? I have a theory with no conclusive proof, but with First Gundam, we talked about World War II, which many people call the last good war, 
with clear good guys and bad guys, an obvious right and wrong side. When you think about Zeta, we know that Tomino was bothered by oversimplifications of the story he was trying to tell. And it seems clear that Zeta reflects that. There are very few likable characters, or characters who are clearly good. And drawing visual reference to a war that inspired more conflicting sentiments would be a good way to continue to develop that sense of complexity and unease that Zeta has been cultivating so far. And this is not the first visual reminiscent of the Vietnam War to show up in Zeta. The uniforms of the Federation jungle soldiers are strikingly similar to the uniforms of American soldiers fighting in Vietnam. I did wonder if there's possibly meant to be a parallel between the United States and the Titans and the Federation and various other countries, governments, and armies supported or even propped up by the U.S. government. I don't know if there's anything there. Tom has put his face on where he he feels like he cannot contribute to this discussion without spoilers. (laughs) And so apparently we are not going to talk about it. (laughs) You can talk about it if you'd like. I made my speculative question statements. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) Zeta Gundam continues to tread over the same ground as First Gundam, literally, if not exactly narratively. Episode 1 took us back to Side 7, we swung by Luna 2, we entered the atmosphere again and saw another antagonist pursue another Gundam too aggressively before burning up during re-entry, and now we're back at Jaburo for another airborne invasion. The Jaburo arc in First Gundam introduced a relative bevy of new mobile suits, one-hit wonders like Zok and Ak-Gai, and of course, the gym. Zeta does the same thing, but to an even greater degree. The Federation defenders include flight-type goofs, gym cannons, saberfish and tin cod airplanes, gym sniper customs, gun tank twos, a gun cannon heavy custom, and one very scared-looking Zaku tank. There's also that plane Hayato is flying at the end, but that appears to be the single surviving prototype of the XB-70 Valkyrie, a real-world United States Air Force experimental bomber from the 1960s that deserves a research section all of its own, but that will have to wait for another day. All of these mobile suits are, canonically, relics of the one-year war, desperately outdated compared to the AUG mobile suits that they're facing. But then why did none of them appear in First Gundam? It's because they are part of the first example of what would go on to become a hallowed Gundam tradition, retroactively adding new mobile suit designs into already established continuity. This first foray into retconning was called MSV, or Mobile Suit Variations, and if that sounds familiar to you, it's because we mentioned it back during episode 2.1 when we talked about what had happened for the Gundam franchise between First Gundam and Zeta. Bandai wanted more designs so that they could sell more Gunpla, and so Okawara Kunio, mechanical designer for First Gundam, set about designing variations on the already established mobile suits. All of the Jaburo defenders in this episode, plus the spy Zaku that Shikwatro destroyed during the Battle for Amon in episode 10, are MSV designs. Toys for these came out in 83 and 84. And they must have sold well enough because there were plans to repeat the process with a second series, MSX, 
but it was canceled when Sunrise announced Zeta. It's interesting to see these designs show up in Zeta, and I have to wonder why they're here. On the one hand, if you've already got good mobile suit designs, why not use them? Or maybe Bandai insisted that these show up in Zeta to help bolster sales of last year's kits. But on the other hand, perhaps Tomino and company held a particular resentment against the MSV mobile suits. There was no story to them at all. They were just cool robot designs created for no purpose except to sell toys. They might have been the perfect distillation of everything they hated about making art in service to commerce. And so, perhaps they took particular glee in wrecking so many of them so thoroughly in this episode. We are making this episode in August 2019, and in a deeply regrettable coincidence, the Amazon rainforest is on fire right now. Human-made fires burned away some 870 square miles of rainforest in July alone. Whether you measure by number of fires or area of forest destroyed, that is a terrifying increase over the same period last year. Brazil's new president, an ally of powerful farmers who covet land covered by the rainforest and inhabited by indigenous tribes, dismissed the data collected by his own government as lies and fired the head of the agency responsible for collecting it. When the evidence became incontrovertible, he accused opposition groups of starting the fires purely to discredit him. The wet rainforest might seem to be resistant to forest fires and under normal conditions it is, but this is a dry time of year and climate change has made it drier still. The Amazon is in terrible, terrible danger. Since you started listening to this episode, roughly 90 acres of tree cover have been destroyed. And just like in Gundam, the consequences will not be limited to the rainforest, and they will linger with us for a long time. I don't suppose we have a call to action to make us feel any better. There are local ecological and indigenous people's rights organizations, which you can contribute money to in order to help defend the rainforest. And we will include links to some well-regarded, internationally vetted organizations in the show notes. Next time on episode 2.14, Relics, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 13 and Dangerous Elements. Very fresh beef for a change. What does cats expect? Some kind of bat cave? Museum pieces. Captain Quattro, he is a char! Impertinent kids. A single tear. That shot from the memes. Just punch the controls. I shall call him Eyebrows. And Camille gives some corrections of his own. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. 
You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, What people don't understand about Zeta is... It's a really tragic story all about Jared, and Camille is the antagonist. Jared Mesa is charming and wonderful. On any busy street corner, we will totally hear you. The music used in the TNN segment was Last Days by Robero. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. say Aetius? A-E-T-I-U-S? Um, I, I would say Aetius. Alright. From, 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 from. His name might be Cooler, but we guarantee there's no one hotter than Lieutenant Capricorn Capcooler. And he's getting hotter all the time. Oh, too soon! Too soon! Let's talk then about this nuclear blast in particular and a little bit about nuclear blasts in general. And even though I phrased it that way, I actually spend a lot of time talking about nuclear blasts in general and only a little bit of time talking about this particular <laughs> nuclear blast. Pressure coming off of Jupiter Ponytail. Headband, headband. Sorry, you're right. <laughs> I'm sorry that the that siren break was really long. Although, and this can't go in the episode, but like True. <laughs> I posted in the chat. <laughs> Quick everyone, we need a wrong kind <laughs> of opinion. <laughs> I'm like a goblin creature hiding below the desk. Tom would prefer I not post pictures of him, which I completely understand. If we really wanted our faces all over the internet, we'd have done a YouTube channel and not a podcast. The problem with all the stuff in the office is sometimes I'll notice something behind you and it'll make me think of something else and you'll be like, is something wrong? Like you'll react to it as if there's something wrong. Like, that does that does happen. No, I just noticed that my bamboo needs to be watered and trimmed. You need to be in the zone. It's hard. There's a lot of art behind you. You just have curtains behind me. Blah blah blah. Blah 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 blah. Jabadoo. You speak Simlish. Check on a squee. Yapta! <laughs> <laughs>